Hey, you're very welcome back to the programme. I'm, I'm here kind of in shock. You think you know a colleague and then they tell you during the ad break that they spent their morning watching the Harry and Meghan Netflix documentary and leaves you kind of questioning your professional existence. Anyway, away from that and back to this. Um, the Overlap, the Sky Sports YouTube channel featuring Roy Keane, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher have announced their uh, very first Irish live show. It'll take place in the Three Arena on March 23rd of next year. The trio will lift the lid on their celebrated playing careers as well as delving deep into today's hottest sporting issues and feel questions from the audience. You can expect insightful opinion uh, and more than the odd heated exchange. Imagine the queue of questions for Roy. Roy could fill the Three Arena on his own. Tickets will go on sale tomorrow at 10am and we want to give you the chance to win a pair of tickets to the show and all you have to do to win is answer this question which Overlap Pundit once managed the Spanish side Valencia you can simply text your answer to 51552 and uh, please do make sure to include your full name your county and your email address in the text as always competition terms and conditions apply and you can see those on 2fm.ie all you have to do is tell us which Overlap Pundit once managed the Spanish side Valencia Valencia. So 51552, your name, your county, your email address in your text. So we have spent the first half hour of the programme chatting about the World Cup. We're going to chat about the world of Formula One for um, the next few minutes. And who better qualified to chat to us about that than uh, Lee McKenzie, who has uh, anchored much of the Formula One coverage, which we would have enjoyed in recent years. She's just published her brand new book, Inside Formula One, and joins us now. Lee, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. I did like the segue of Harry, Meghan, Roy Keane to me, so I feel that you're on the slide. Well, see, you're you're, broad, <laughs> you're broadcasting royalty. I I, I I could go with I could I come here. I could just come up with. But you 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 know the the world of broadcasting where you're sitting there focused on the next thing, and then suddenly in your ear someone makes an audacious statement, and you start to question your very existence. And so, you're still going to either you know hold your nerve and carry on or, or yeah. sort of fix a smile on your face and carry on this this is my world all the time and the, the worst thing is there's two people in the control room I've mentioned one of them spent their morning watching Harry and Meghan and I fear I may have libeled the other one who's sitting out there who could probably take a case for defamation against me for anyway we best move on um, I I, I, I for the first time in my life, I listened to your audiobook rather than read the book, which was the most yeah. enjoyable way. I drove to Limerick and back yesterday for work and you kept me great company. Um, the one thing that came across from it is this, you, you're there in a professional capacity. You are renowned for asking difficult questions when they need to be asked. But I get a sense from you that you are so happy to be in the centre of this world of madness because it means so much to you. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm, you know, I sort of grew up in this world and I absolutely love it. And it doesn't actually matter to me um, whether it's Formula One or rugby or horses. When I'm doing something I love, and I think this is a sort of kind of a good guide for life, you can always tell when someone's enjoying it. Um, But I'm not paid to fly around the world and have the time of my life. (laughs) I think that would be a very short-lived career. So ultimately, as you say, you know, it doesn't matter if I've been at a driver's wedding or, you know, a funeral or, you know, what we've been at the week before because you share highs and, and some desperate lows. You've still got to show up and you've still got to do your job and they've got to do their job. Otherwise, it would be the end of story. You know, someone else would come in and replace me. So it's quite a strange balance to get right. But I've been part of it for such a long time. Um 
I and you know I do absolutely love it. Just the the way the world operates that you're in a certain city for a race weekend and literally on the Sunday evening the entire paddock decamps to a chartered jet or some form of pre-organized transport and you travel en masse to the next city. Yeah. Um it does create a sense even just a sense of visual awareness that it is it really does open the door to these guys when and it's the same with sports people of any ilk when they see you on a repeated basis. Um they do tend to open up to you that little bit more because there is that sense of familiarity. Yeah, absolutely. I think where people go wrong is that they think that they're friends um, and there's a big difference between being friendly with someone and being friends with someone. And you can be both. That's not a problem. But ultimately, you still have to do your job at the end of the day. But it is very different. I mean, if you know, going back to the time where I was doing, say, 22 races a year, um, you end up eating with the same people, you're flying with the same people, quite often you're in the gym or, or something like that. When I'm doing rugby, if I was doing Champions Cup, um, you know, I might see Leinster twice a season, three times a season or something. Mm-hmm. It's a bit the same, you know, when you're when you're covering football, like, you know, as, as George, who was just almost, would, would know as well, you, you can't see every team every single week. It just doesn't work out that way. But when you do a tennis or a Formula One, you are in this very weird circle, you know, circus, you use the word circus, and that's exactly what it is. Um, they, they are a unique brand of sports people because where else in the world, maybe aside from heavyweight boxing, where else in the world do you put your mortality on the line on a weekly basis? Yeah, and that actually resonates and, and comes through all the time. And it's not because they're talking about it, because they're not talking about it. But there's just an awareness there. Um, and there's a sort of theme, and I, I mentioned this in the book, that we all have a limited number of heartbeats so use them well and that can be um you know me going oh i'm tired i might just get room service and then someone going what do you mean you're you've come all the way to sydney for four days or melbourne or wherever you happen to be in the world you know live that moment and i'll be there with like an xf1 driver or something thinking oh my god i just want to sleep Hmm. but they do live every moment and it doesn't matter if they're a current driver an ex-driver when you've had success measured in thousands of a second, which most of us can't fathom what that even is, you learn to live to very stringent rules. And, you know, it's just success is such a fine line and enjoyment is everything. And it's it's a very weird way of, of working, which you don't realise until you step out and go into other sports. And then other people, you know, I'd, I had it in rugby. I'd gone from Formula One. Uh, I was doing a match over at uh, um, Munster and I, I sort of sent a big email afterwards, like a debrief, like a Formula One debrief. And I just remembered Jamie Heaslip calling me up going, what on earth is this? Like, you know, we don't get this at the British and Irish Lions. Who do you think you are? But in a sort of fun way, because he'd never seen anyone work that way. But that's how we all work in Formula One. And the more time you spend with drivers, the more that sort starts to rub off on you. Mm. And there are pros and cons to it, without a doubt. So, so the other thing then, to, to develop that somewhat, that obviously the risk that they deal with on a weekly basis, but it is also amongst the most fickle aspects of elite sport, irrespective of who you are, at the end of the season, if you don't either have points on the board or perhaps more importantly, sponsors in the bank, uh, literally you can go from the top of the grid to being either at the bottom of the grid or not on the grid at all. So maybe does, does that fuel somewhat this almost James Hunt-like need to enjoy yourself and live life to the max once you're at the, the elite end of the sport? Yeah, I mean, no. most drivers get to Formula One because they've won the junior formula on the way up. 
So very few drivers just turn up. But they've got to be good enough to get a super license. So there, there's a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, their dad owns a team or he just brings, you know, a bag of cash and off he goes. And sometimes that is true, but it doesn't mean to say that they're bad drivers. They're maybe just not good enough to be world champions or right at the very front. Therefore, you get very good drivers coming in and leaving a few years later and then they go off and race in America or other series as well but they can always say they've been a formula one driver and why wouldn't you if you're a you know a 19 20 year old kid from brazil who's like you know having the time of his life and can go to parties and turn up and drive fast cars and fly around the world and get looked after like a you know an absolute superstar mm. then if you can't enjoy that then i think there's something seriously wrong with you yeah like in the, in the case of felipe massa who you know became such a, a giant star in his own country and the way the the mm. formula one season traditionally climaxes uh, in brazil and a guy who literally a number of years beforehand was delivering dinners to those in the paddock like it's you know yeah. like it's it's an unbelievable story and that's what I wanted to do in this book. You know, people had said, oh, well, maybe you could write your story because you've done Olympics and you've done this and done that. And I was like, well, I don't want to do it because A, I'm private and B, it'd be very dull because I'm not that exciting. But what I wanted to do was give these drivers, um, you know, the sort of respect they deserve and let people know where they started from. Because I think in any sport, to be able to support someone or to know why you like them or dislike them, you've got to know their story. You've got to know where they've come from. And then you can appreciate that. And if you just tap into, you know, some of the big uh, series that are on, like a Drive to Survive or something, mm. you wouldn't know anything different. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. It's popularized the, the sport massively. But it's been around for four years and you see what's in front of you. You don't learn the backstory. You don't know why if Fernando Alonso wins a race next year, how special that would be because he's been through a lot and he's not won a championship since 2006. So I just wanted to give a little, you know, put the focus back on the drivers um, using the stories that I've done throughout their careers as well and, and really give them the limelight that they deserve because if you don't have these guys there wouldn't be a sport. Mm. The, the book is broken up into chapters focusing on, on your interactions and your experiences with various drivers. Um, the easiest thing to do is start with Michael Schumacher, who's the first chapter, and, and work our way yeah. through. But in Schumacher, the sport is what it is today because of the injection of interest that he brought to the grid in the 90s that yeah. a lot of the drivers who are on the grid today are either inspired by them their parents grew up watching Schumacher with the passage of time and is there an awareness do you think amongst the younger drivers on the paddock that this figure of legend they owe so much to him yeah I think there actually is because a lot of the people that are working at the teams would have worked with Michael in some capacity um you know, what's really interesting, I mean, actually, Ayrton Senna's physio is still working in Formula One. Wow. So when people become lifers in this sport, um, what's interesting is Michael changed it in so many ways. And I, I talk about this in the chapter, even when he was at Mercedes and not having the success that he had in his previous career, as it were, with, when he was winning with Ferrari, um, he still was probably the last to leave the track. He was the first in, last to leave the track. He took fitness to a completely different level. He really professionalized the sport and other drivers were like, well, who does he think he is? Well, actual fact, they learned quite quickly who he was because, you know, you don't get to that level of greatness um, by, you know, just being lazy in your private life and being great on a racetrack. To be able to sustain it, you've got to focus that, you know, your entire life around it. And that's what Michael did so well. And I think there is a huge appreciation. That's why it was so disappointing 
um, that his son Mick just, um, you know, struggled a bit this year. But, you know, who wouldn't struggle when they've got the pressure of that surname and their father isn't able to come to the track with them. So, you know, it's a, I think that's quite an emotional, uh, you know, side story to that. Yeah, and, and it, there's a tragedy around the morbid fascination that has developed over the course of the last 12 months as well, which which everyone involved could just do without. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you've always got to respect people's privacy in these situations, you know, just because they deal with it by, you know, closing things down and keeping it to themselves. We don't really have a right to know uh, what's going on. Maybe the fans who have invested time and money and gone to watch Michael over the years would love to know. But I think also they just uh, appreciate um, where Michael is in his life. And therefore, you know, every time Mick was asked a question at the track, you just it tended to just have a bit of a weight to it. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's very difficult to deal with when you're a young kid trying to make your own way. Um, you, I, I could, we'd be here all night were we to go through every driver and I have <laughs> questions worry. about I have questions about every driver that I, I'd like to talk to you about from, from Hamilton who's obviously taken on the flame but yet proves to be such a, actually just briefly on Hamilton, he has obviously, you look at his record but yet he appears to be such a divisive figure and I get the sense from you who obviously knows him and has dealt with his family and has watched him come through the ranks that he is not deserving of the bad press that he gets for being just a unique character in a, a world of conformity. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Lewis to me now is more like the Lewis I knew when he was 18, 19, 20 years old um, because he can feel that he can be himself again. Um, so there was a time where, you know, he was, uh, you know, sending his plane to get Kanye West and like his family and bring them to Glastonbury and do all this kind of stuff. But why wouldn't you? Again, if you're suddenly earning 45 million a year, you come from Stevenage, you've just had your eyes open to everything, everything there is in front of you, and you're growing up in the public eye. You know, I think everyone would make a, not mistakes, but, you know, just sort of change their the way that they live. He's come back full circle. He knows who he is. He doesn't actually care if we like it or not, um, but he is much more true to himself now than he has been before. He's been through a lot of adversity um, in his private life, uh, you know, on track as well. He's got nothing to prove. Mm. Um, I, I'm going to aim to be possibly the only interview that doesn't grill you repeatedly about Sebastian Vettel and your friendship with him. If people <laughs> want to know nice, about that, yeah. let them buy the book. So I'm going to put that exactly. to one side. The, the one, I, I wonder, am I unique in that regard? Um, the, the chapter that really fascinated me was Fernando Alonso. Um, man who has transformed how like Formula One was not a thing in Spain it was all about bike racing he has had a situation where they went from I think the the line you have in the book is 200,000 viewers to 10 million viewers for a guy who achieved all that he achieved in the sport is it slightly disingenuous or harsh to say that he underachieved Yes, no, that's absolutely true and I think um, when I was watching back all my interviews um with these drivers which was a kind of a a, a really bizarre trip down memory lane I actually said that to him and I was cringing in my own home like hiding behind my laptop thinking oh my god how can you say that but he is eight points away from being a five-time world champion and I just can't imagine from that level of absolute greatness how you square that off with yourself I mean there are many reasons I couldn't be a professional athlete but moving on from something like that is probably one of the main ones um, Fernando is a, a, you know a, can be a tricky character 
I you know, quite like him. I think he's incredibly in- intelligent, maybe too intelligent for his own good. But just through things that have happened at teams, badly timed moves, he's found himself at the wrong team at the you know at the wrong time. So he's left teams that have gone on to win championships just you know months before they've gone on and done so and I find that I found that chapter to write really frustrating I was getting frustrated when I wrote it because I could it just to me seems there was so much more there there, there could have been so so much more but he's happy so I feel that I should be happy yeah And let's be honest, two championships, 32 Formula One wins. Like it's, you know, there's, there's fellas would uh, would give anything just to have a, a small bit of that. Can I, can I just, to, as we, we near conclusion, um, it, it's an unbelievable treadmill to be on. And for example, like, you know, we, we'd hope to see in Dublin for the Six Nations early next year. Yeah. And then those who embark on this, it is it is a way of life. It has to be a way of life because the, the sequence of races is just so demanding. Yeah, it absolutely is. And I'm fortunate I do um, other sports. You know, I now will do 10 races because we can split them or, you know, maybe just a little bit more. We, we try and do half and half. But then you get things that clash. So at the moment, I'm in a sort of like, I'm down to do Saudi Arabia. I know my boss won't be, you know, he's in London, so he won't be listening to this. But um, it clashes with the Cheltenham Festival. So I'm all in a panic at the moment about how I, how late I can fly to Saudi Arabia, which is never um, sort of a, an issue anyway for me. But yeah, so you want to you want to do the things that you enjoy. You need to try and fit in possibly a Rugby World Cup in the busiest part of the Formula One season. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a bit of a Jenga just now that we're, we're trying to do between different broadcasters and different sports. And just to, to finish, if we can take the, the do a Wurzel Gummidge and take the Formula One head off and put the rugby head back on for okay. a second. Yes. Um, the, the rugby god, I, I, I do the radio interviews for, for the Six Nations for us here. And, you know, last yeah. week the rugby gods gave us back Warren Gatland, which is going to make things really <laughs> exciting again. And then the next day they take away Eddie Jones. It is going to be um, such a strange dynamic next year and one must wonder what it must be like to work within English rugby at the minute with a Rugby World Cup looming and a sense that they don't really seem to know they know what they want to do but they don't really seem to know how they're going to do it Yeah I think for me the timing I I don't necessarily think it was the wrong decision on Eddie but the timing is incredibly odd I think by this stage I think Wales is a little bit different because Warren is so ingratiated with that Welsh Mm. team that even when Wayne Pivak was there um, you know he has he's driving he's driving through Gatland Gate to get into the Principality Stadium and Warren is very much still a live presence um, in the WRU the English situation is incredibly different Um, I think that they've almost committed by this point um, I'm not quite sure what can be done, although you would say the same. You know, I did uh, a lot of the South Africa matches in the build-up to the last World Cup, and we saw how much they changed 12 months out. But I don't know. It's a, it's a brave, brave call. Yeah. Um, and and if, they, if they can get the right man in, in place for the Six Nations, it might make a very, very significant impact on it. Um, Liam, miles over on time. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you in the press room in the Aviva for a cup of tea. I when will. The Six I'll Nations be in the Aviva around. for a few uh, from, from February onwards. So thank you so much. It's thanks, Lee. Inside, for, Inside F1 is uh, the book. And if you're looking for uh, a last minute present for a motorsport fan, you could do an awful lot worse than that. We are going to chat uh, sports in the States, or I in America, with Shep on the way.